while talking and thinking about that theme of hope, which is something that we all need in increasing measure. Um, the Bible has much to say about it. And um, if you are looking for hope today, then you've come to the right place, because this is hope. And uh, the reason we called this church hope is because we realised that's what we're all in need of. And we're working our way through the book of Hebrews at the moment. And uh, Hebrews has this wonderful little insight into hope, because it says we have this hope as an anchor for the soul. And um, we all need an anchor, and we particularly need, need an anchor when things are rough and difficult and challenging. Uh, we need an anchor for the soul, we need an anchor for our lives, and the Bible says that we have this hope in Christ, which is an anchor for our souls. Amen? Amen. Yeah? And so let's remember that, let's ponder that, let's uh, think on that uh, together. Good. Well, if you have your Bible with you, you can uh, open it up with me to Hebrews chapter 1. And that's where we're going to be heading towards um, this morning. Uh, last week, we did a eight-minute sort of overview of the book of Hebrews that we did on the screens um, by um, the Bible Project. It gave a really good animation of what Hebrews is all about, um, what the book is for, what its purpose is for. And so if you didn't get a chance to look at that, then go and review last week's service and you can watch through that again because um, I think that is really helpful. And uh, we're going to try and get a print off of the actual finished um, overview so that we can pass it out to everybody so we can have a copy of that in our Bibles as we continue to work through the book of Hebrews together. Um, as I've said um, on many occasions, um, understanding why a, a book in the Bible was written is a real key to getting proper insight into what that book is all about. Um, it's not really good enough for us just to turn to it and read through without any sort of reference of understanding as to why that book was written, uh, because we can find ourselves in all sorts of different rabbit warrants and if, if we go that way. So having a bit of an understanding as to why a book in the Bible was written can be a real benefit and real help to us, um, I think. And the overview that we looked at last week is really beneficial um, in that regard. Uh, suffice to say that for us today, in sort of stepping back into it again this morning, um, the book of Hebrews is, is written to a group of people who are facing real serious persecution for their faith. So it's not written for people in a good time, it's written for people in a difficult and challenging time. And it's with that in mind that we read it today. So the book of Hebrews is written to people who are facing persecution, uh, facing confiscation of their property, for their stand and their faith in Christ, uh, putting their lives at risk of being imprisoned for their faith. Um, all of these things are alien to us, aren't they? You know, we, we, we have no comprehension of what that might mean. There's no comprehension in our minds that somebody might turn up and because we've been in church this morning, may come and say, you know, um, the bailiffs are coming, there's a confiscation order on your property uh, because you profess faith in Christ. Um, there is no a risk to us of being taken to the courts and dragged through the courts um, because we make a profession of faith 
or because we've been baptised. All of this is really, really alien to our understanding of what faith is all about. Of course, that's not true for many parts of the world. In many parts of the world, this risk of persecution is real and severe. And people would say, you know, it is heightened now in different parts of the world in a way that we've not experienced before in terms of the amount of people who are being persecuted for their faith, are being potentially imprisoned, are having things confiscated from them. So many people are living like that, but that's not our uh, real experience. So this is a book that is about understanding what our faith really is and what it should mean to us. And, and it comes with different levels of warning. And you can understand why when you think of the context into which it's written. Because if we went home today and then there was a text sent round a little bit later and said, I'm sorry to have to inform you uh, about this, but we've just heard that Kathleen and, and David Middleton have been imprisoned. It was reported back by their neighbours that they went to church this morning and, and now they've been imprisoned for their faith you may start to think, oh gosh, are they coming after me next? You know, was I on that live stream this morning? Did they actually see my face? Uh, are they and so it instills a level of fear. And what do you do with that fear? Well, you've either got to dig down into that fear and say, well, you know, that fear is not going to get the better of me. I'm going to stand my, my convictions and hold on to what I believe and what will be will be, but I'm going to take that in faith and I'm going to take that in confidence. Or you may say to yourself, mm, I'm not sure whether I'm going to go to church next week. No, I've heard that. And you could understand why you'd respond to that. You can then begin to see why it says in Hebrews, can't you? We should not give up the habit of meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Um, We've got to press through here. And you can also understand then, oh, we're into uh, disco territory again. We can also understand then why, um, why, why there are certain warnings written into the book of Hebrews that we need to stand strong and, and hold true. But equally, if you're going to stand strong and hold true, you want to know what you're standing strong on and what you're holding true to. So the foundations do become really important. And I think that's why the book of Hebrews is such a substantial book. It's such a, an energetic book. It's such a, a strong book um, because of this sort of background into which the book was written. And it's worth us pondering on that and thinking about these sorts of things. So we're going to look over chapters two and cha uh, sorry chapters one and chapters two this morning. We're just going to take a skim reading through it and pick certain things out of it. And we're going to do that under three separate headings. So these are the headings. If you are wanting to uh, make make notes of these, we're going to talk about the divinity of Jesus being established. We're going to talk about the superiority of Jesus being demonstrated. And we're going to talk about the humanity of Jesus being displayed. Okay, so we're going to look from these first two chapters, the divinity of Jesus being established, the superiority of Jesus being demonstrated, and the humanity of Jesus being displayed. If you're going to hang your life on Jesus, then you want to be knowing a few things about the Jesus that you're hanging your life upon. 
And so the writer starts by establishing, I think, clearly these three things that we're going to dig into uh, together. Some of this stuff, of course, did weave its way into the early church, and the creeds, I think, are a good example of what we're looking at here in these first two chapters. Here's the Apostles' Creed, just reading it out to us this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. If you want to believe something, then that's a good place to start. If you want to try and take all of these scriptures and bring them together into a creedal statement, something that you can quote and think on and remember as to what are the essentials of our understanding and belief in Jesus, then that's really, I think, always a good place to go back to and to really hold on to. But let's read now Hebrews chapter 1, reading from verse 4 down to the end of the chapter And we're going to make a few comments in terms of Jesus, his divinity being established. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son and today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will (coughs) perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. For to which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Has anybody ever had an encounter with an angel? Anybody think that they may have had an encounter with an angel, but wouldn't be confident enough to actually say, yes, I definitely did. Angels rare in our experience then? The Bible says that they're God's ministering agents. It's interesting, isn't it? 
when Noah was first born, we were shopping in Boots. And as if out of nowhere, this guy appeared. He was really scruffy, a bit like a, maybe somebody who was, I don't know if he was living rough, but you know, he, he, he looked a little bit um, worn. And he came up to us and he said certain things about Noah, about what he would be and what he would do and what amazing wisdom he would have. And both Joe and I were a little bit taken aback at the time and carried on. And then it was as if the guy was gone. He'd probably gone round the next shop. You, you know what I mean? I don't want to make it into something more than what it was. But it was just an unusually bizarre setting. It was as if we bumped into him out of nowhere, we looked at each other, and he'd gone out of nowhere. I'm sure he was in the shop somewhere. I don't want to say it, make it into something that it wasn't. But sometimes in life you have unusual encounters, don't you? I wonder what those unusual encounters are sometimes. Whether they are a bit more than what we perhaps would like to think of them being. It always strikes me that there's a very thin veil between coming into the world and going out of the world. Both our birth and our death are supernatural events. Nobody can say to me that the birth of a child isn't a supernatural event. When you've been there for the birth of a child, and I've been there for the birth of three children, it is a supernatural event. I remember as well that I got the impression from the birth of my own kids that during the first few hours, maybe even days, of a child's life, they can see things that we can't see. It's as if that veil is really, really thin. You may think I'm going out of my mind, and that's fine. I'm not making a theology out of this. I'm not trying to convince you to believe something. I'm just telling you the way that I've experienced it. And I think death is similar. Joe was telling me about an article that she'd read about nurses who work in palliative care and are with many patients who come towards the end of their life and pass through the veil, of how they speak of amazingly peaceful and odd things. You could say that it's hallucination, but what if it isn't? You may say, oh, it's just a mind playing tricks on you. But what if it's not? What if the veil between coming into the world and leaving the world is so thin that it's almost as if the supernatural engagement of the mysterious thing that we know of life touches us more deeply at those times than any other times? It would make sense for that to be the case, wouldn't it? You also hear the stories of places, places in the world where people will confess to you that it feels like that's a thin place between heaven and earth, as if the veil 
is thinner. And, and, it, and it's often surrounding historical places that have experienced decades or centuries of prayer and worship and intercession. And when people walk into those buildings or encounter those environments, it's almost as if they say, that's a thin place. You almost feel as if God resides there in a particular and unusual way. Again, I don't want to make a theology out of all of this. I just want to point out to us that we should travel through our life with an expectation of encountering the divine God in wonderful ways. I was reminded, as I'm standing here, of Paul's story of the churchyard in Bunny and how he had an epiphany in that situation. God comes to us at different times and in peculiar ways and he ministers his grace and his truth into our lives and we should be aware of those moments and remain present in those moments. Sometimes we can't get to being present because we're so addicted to noise and phones or, or whatever it is. Um, I was listening to, um, I listened to the um, Alistair Campbell, Rory Stewart podcast. Um, I forget what it's called now. Um, but Rory Stewart, who is a believer in God in, in whatever way, um, was saying to Alistair Campbell, who is an atheist, um, that he, he goes on silent retreats at different times in his life. And I think he's done a couple of these silent retreats over extended periods of days. Um, and, and he goes there to ponder his own mortality, to think about what it means to die, and to think deeply about what really is the meaning of life. And he confesses to those being really spiritual times in his life. And sometimes you have to be sufficiently unconnected from things to step into those spaces. And they become spaces then that are thinner and when God can reach out to us and touch us in particular ways. There are stories told, I've not experienced them myself, of big worship gatherings. And in those big worship gatherings, after they've finished, people have testified to the fact that it was as if they could hear angels continuing to sing after the worship services had finished? I don't know. But what I'm saying is, I don't want to live my life so skeptically and cynically so as to be devoid of encountering the risen Christ in my life in meaningful and mysterious ways. Because whichever way we stack all of this up, life is mysterious anyway. It's mysterious anyway. It's mysterious from the point of the universe. It's mysterious from the point of our own existence. Everything about this life at a deeper level is beautifully mysterious. And I want to be open to encountering the risen Christ and his truth and his life in my heart. And if that means understanding that all, main, all angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation, then I'm happy to be open to that. That was a slight distraction. Um, 
you know, it's quite a long distraction <laughs> looking at the clock over there. Um, to get to the point of saying, however, angels are not in the same category as Jesus Christ. They are created beings. And what the writer to Hebrews is doing is establishing clearly to a Christian Jewish audience who are open to all of these angelic visitations and read of them often in their Old Testament that Jesus is in a different category to them. When we're talking about Christ, we're talking about the risen one, the one who is God's son. And so we're here to establish this fact. We're here to recognize that angels are ministering servants. They come to perform God's work in the world, however they go about doing that, however they are created being, beings. But the writer wants us to know that Jesus is the divine son of God. And he does this by underlining it in several ways. But in verse 8 of chapter 1, it says, But, in speaking of the angels, he says, the verse before it, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But, about the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever. This is a clear, in my mind, defining statement of our understanding that the writer to the Hebrews wants you to know that when he's speaking of Jesus Christ, he is speaking of God incarnate. He is the divine one in flesh. But your throne, O God, will last forever. I've often used those, well, not often, but I have sometimes used those verses when talking to Jehovah's Witnesses and in just re-establishing where the scriptures come from in underlining something of the deity of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, you must make your choice, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is, through the scriptures, clearly established as God's son, God in flesh, the divine son of God. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 says, But in your hearts... Set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And so he became as much superior to the angels, the writer says, as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. We see that the divine nature of Christ is established and his superiority over the angelic realm is also demonstrated, which then brings us to a place of decision. The first of several warnings that come through the book of Hebrews that we equally need to think about and then go on and respond to. The place of decision is found in chapter 2, reading there from verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. 
Remember the setting, remember the context, remember the persecution, remember the fear. I don't know whether I'm going to go to church anymore because my friend who I was sitting to last week has now been arrested for their faith. Remember all that's going off in the psyche, in the minds of these people. So we must make, pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. For since the message through angels was binding... Uh, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Spirit, uh, distributed according to his will. The coming of the Christ, his mission in the world, and his place as the divine Son is a message to which we must give careful thought and due attention, lest we drift away from the essential nature of that message. Uh, particularly to a group of people who are at risk of doing that because fear is trying to get the better of them. And so will they hold firm to their faith in the face of the massive amount of fear that they're experiencing? How shall we escape? Escape what, we might ask? Well, escape our own wilderness if we end up going back. That would be a good place to start with a warning. Of when we drift away from our faith, where do we find ourselves apart from in our own lostness again? Back in the wilderness, wandering around, trying to find our way forward. That's what we're at risk of losing. If we lose this salvation, we end up being lost again wondering what life is really all about, we must be careful not to go back there, to get caught up in our own wanderings and lostness if we lose the unique place of Jesus in our lives. And in fact, this is true at so many levels because if we lose the unique place of Jesus in our own lives, then when the storms of life come, then we do find that we're being tossed here and there. And we do find so easily that things can come in and overwhelm us and so we've got to try and get back to that place where our life is anchored in the truth of who Jesus is, lest we drift away from that. Because the cross still stands. The resurrection still happened. The coming of Christ will still take place. And so we want to anchor our lives around these things and not find ourselves drifting away. This is the nature of the first warning that Hebrews is speaking to us about. I understand that there may be a way in there to talk about eternal separation and the context of heaven and hell. I don't really want to go there today. Some may say, well, you know, do you believe in those things? I mean... Who wouldn't believe in those things? When you see the nature of the way in which the world is, my only hope is that one day true judgment will come to the face of evil as we see it. And that people will be held account and to account for the evil that we experience in our world. But we're careful because we don't want to drift away. So the divinity of Jesus is established, the superiority of Jesus is demonstrated, and the humanity of Jesus is displayed. Let's just bring this to a close in a few moments by thinking about the humanity of Jesus and how this humanity is displayed. 
we go back to the Bible, we're in chapter 2, we're reading from verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him, you made them a little lower than the angels, you crowned them with glory and honour and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children that God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let me wrap this particular chapter up under this title of the humanity of Jesus being displayed with four simple statements. The first thing that we need to think about in Jesus taking on full humanity is this, he let go of. The second thing that we need to think about in thinking about the humanity of Jesus is this, he shared it. The third thing that we need to think about is that he made atonement for, and the fourth thing is he empathizes with. So in the humanity of Jesus, the God who takes on flesh, who lets go of divine privilege, if you like, and authority to take on humanity, acts out that humanity in four clear ways that we need to hold on to in understanding who this Jesus really is. The first thing is, he let go of. Verse 9, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, Jesus has tasted death for you. He has taken its stench into his mouth. He has absorbed it into his nostrils. He has died completely and fully and utterly 
so that through his death, we might experience new life and become part of the new creation that his death has once and for all established. Christ will not die again. He will not be raised again. He did die and he is raised and he has tasted death so that the corruptible nature of what death is may not take grip over your life and mine. He has come to set us free. But he let go of his life in order to taste death for you so that you can have the life that his death offers to all. He let go of. The second thing is he shared in. Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. The devil is destroyed, not through an act of, um, what am I trying to say? Not through an act of power, as we understand power, but through a demonstration of weakness, which actually was God's power displayed on the cross. And he frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. He shares in our humanity. Thirdly, he makes atonement for. Verse 17, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Christ has not only conquered death, but he has made atonement for the sins of humankind and indeed for the corruption of the whole of the cosmos so that everything can be made new again. The disturbance of sin that comes into the world is conquered and broken through the atonement of Christ who bears in his body's body the sin of the whole of the cosmos. This is why his death upon the cross is singularly the most significant event in the whole of the universe. Because it's through that death that the possibility and the prospect of new life that you taste and experience as we give our lives to Christ and enter into his fullness can become ours. Let's stand together. We're going to worship the fourth thing is that he empathizes with us. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted or who are suffering. I tell you what, how tempting would it have been for those Jewish Christians to have given up on their faith in the face of such horrible persecution. How tempting must it have been for them? But the writer wanted them to know that the one that they were following after understood what they were going through. 
because he himself had suffered. So he wasn't removed from them. He was with them in it and going through it with them. And he is with you too. And he is with me. And we just reach out to Christ today to allow him to touch our hearts. Because what do we have here this morning in these next eight minutes just before we finish? We have a thin place. That's what I want to say to you. A thin place. An opportunity where humanity can touch divinity by reaching out to him in our worship. So I want to encourage you to worship this morning. I want you to encourage you to worship the risen Lord Jesus, the divine one, the superior one, and the one who took upon humanity so that we might taste divinity.